Now, if there's one hymn that most Americans love, it's the hymn Amazing Grace. I was sent this week a video of this song that was sung in 50 different languages from 50 countries around the world that have been hit by COVID. And it was really amazing to see that not only is this hymn loved in our language, but in so many languages from around the world. Many people don't know that this hymn was written by a man named John Newton, who was an abolitionist as well as a pastor. He worked with William Wilberforce to, to get legislation passed outlawing slave trade in England. But what many people don't know about John Newton was that he at one time was a slave trader. He was the captain of a slave ship that transported people. And later in 19, I'm sorry, 1778, he wrote a tra- treatise called Thoughts on the African Slave Trade. And this is what he said. I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders, a commerce so iniquitous, so cruel, so oppressive, so destructive as the African slave trade. He wrote those words in 1778, and the next year he released a collection of hymns with his friend William Cooper. And in that collection of hymns was that song, Amazing Grace, And people began to fall in love with it, which is really interesting because it starts out like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Who would have thought that a hymn, extolling the grace of God that opens up with this word about being a wretch in need of grace, could actually grab hold of people's hearts and imaginations? But it has. And in the centuries that it's been sung since it was composed and around the world, many people have found hope that God could have grace for someone like me, someone like you. And this is good because I remember a conversation I had with a friend of mine, and he said to me, can God use a screw-up like me? And I said to him, oh, friend, do I got some good news for you? (laughs) That's all God uses. Apart from Jesus Christ, who was sinless, who was pure, who did everything right, God only has the material of screwed up lives. And King David would say amen to that, because he knew what it meant to need grace, to need mercy. And so we're going to call our study today, O God of my salvation. We're taking a phrase from Psalm 51 that we're actually going to look at today. And as I get ready to, we're just going to dial in on verses 13 through 17, but as we get ready to uh, look at those verses, I want to just read the context, the verses leading up to verse 13, so we can remember where we've been, so we can be reacquainted with this psalm. It begins with this superscript. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, and after he had gone into Bathsheba. This gives us the backdrop of of the time when David took Bathsheba and used her for his own pleasure, sent her away. And then when she had conceived because of their uh, time together, he conspired to have her husband Uriah put to death. And he was confronted with Nathan the prophet, and his eyes were open, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's in the wake of that event that we get this psalm. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, as we get ready to look at the verses that follow, I want to just simply ask ask us this question to set it up. So if God really does answer this kind of prayer, what should be the effect upon our lives? If in a moment of desperation we can call out with King David, Oh God, have mercy upon me. Wash me from my sin, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God. If God were really to answer that kind of a prayer, what should be the effect in your life and in mine? I want to suggest there's going to be several key effects that we see in these verses that follow. First of all, we'll want to tell others. There's this amazing shift that takes place. It could have ended just at verse 12, but David says this, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. David envisions himself as being useful to God in a new and deeper way than he ever had before. David himself will be able to teach transgressors. He he himself understood himself to be a transgressor. And he did have a role in leading the nation of Israel in righteousness, in in the ways of God. And now he's become an example of someone who blew it massively. And so he wants to teach once again. But now he has a new understanding of something even more glorious that he could tell people. And in doing so, sinners will return to God. Just like David is now returning to God. He says, I want you to use me, God, so that other people can look at my life and the grace and the forgiveness and the new heart you've given to me and have hope. He wrote another psalm, Psalm 32, which scholars believe is part of the the fulfillment of, of what David said here. Psalm 32 is another psalm of repentance. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here's part of David teaching people like you and me, people who failed like David has, people who wonder if God can use a screw-up like me. David is saying, yes, don't cover your sin. Confess those to the Lord, and you will find forgiveness. You will find grace, and you will find mercy. The Apostle Paul, Jesus' ambassador to the Roman Empire, knew this truth well. At one point, he was leading 
the religious establishment and the persecution and killing of Christians. And he met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and his heart was converted. He was given a new heart. And he would later, towards the end of his life, write these words to his young protege, Timothy. He said, formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Here, the Apostle Paul is doing just what David said. He's teaching sinners and transgressors the ways of God particularly in dealing with sinners who turn back to him. He says, look, I am the foremost sinner. One translation puts it, I am the chief of sinners. If God were to give out trophies for the biggest sinner, I would be in first place. I would get that trophy, he says. But look, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I know that because I am the chief. I'm the foremost. And he said this, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Here the Apostle Paul says, you want to know what God has done with me, a screw up like me? He has captured me and uses me now as a trophy of his grace to put me on display for anyone who might doubt whether God can have mercy and grace upon them. I say, just look at Paul. He was arrogant, self-righteous. He thought he was doing God's will, putting people to death. And God had mercy on him. So let me ask you a question as I show you this graphic. Is this the disposition of someone who has been blown away by God's mercy? If you were to ask many people outside the church, and many people who've had experience inside the church, what Christians are like, My friends, this is a mental image that comes to so many people's minds. Someone who is angry, someone who just delights in condemning other people. In fact, studies have been shown asking unbelievers, people who do not follow Christ, what their impression of Christians are. And at the top of the list is they're hypocritical and judgmental. Can you imagine talking to David, who had received mercy and grace, from God, or the Apostle Paul, who said, look, I'm on display as someone who is unworthy of God's love and grace, but I've been lavished with it. Can you imagine them them having a disposition of condemnation and judgmentalism towards other people? Scott Saul is a, a pastor and an author that I read a lot of his works. One time said, have you ever met a person who says they trusted Jesus because religious people scolded them for their morals, their ethics, and their lifestyle choices. He says, in all my years, I have yet to meet a man, woman, or child with such a story. Now, I imagine there might be someone's story who, you know, this is what God used to get a hold of someone's mind. But it breaks my heart, especially when we have, you know, traveling evangelists come through and stand up on the, the, the campus of Texas A&M and just scream at people 
And what they were offering is condemnation and judgment. And there's no grace and there's no mercy. And you look at these people with contorted and distorted faces. And you have to ask yourself the question, have they even experienced mercy themselves? How are they coming across as so self-righteous? Now, I'm not suggesting, my friends, that, that we don't shoot straight with people. I mean, of course we do. We can. Jesus shoots straight with us. But as William Cooper, one of John Newton's very good friends said, seeing we are vessels of mercy, should not the scent and sweet aroma of mercy go from us to others? If we've experienced mercy and if we've experienced grace, shouldn't that be the aroma that people pick up from our lives? When the prophets of Israel said, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. And so, my friends, as we experience God's grace transforming us, and we want to tell others, this is the disposition we take. D.T. Niles once said, evangelism is one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. It's not dividing the world into to people who are worthy of condemnation and, and people like me who aren't. It's saying, look, we've all screwed up. And there's plenty of grace and mercy found at the foot of the cross. And so one effect of God's transforming mercy and grace is that we'll want to tell others. Another effect is that we'll want to praise God. Look what David says in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Uh, there's a word here that many of us don't use very often. It's the word blood guiltiness. Some translations put it like this, the guilt of bloodshed. So he's saying, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. David's not asking so much for escape from human justice as he is saying, Lord, when I stand before the bar of your justice, Deliver me from the guilt of what I have done. I have destroyed people's lives. Lord, have mercy upon me. Charles Spurgeon put it well. He said, what David is doing and asking for this, he said, he had been the means of the death of Uriah. And now, and, I'm, and he confesses, I'm sorry, let me start that all over again. He had been the means of the death of Uriah. And he now confesses that fact. He puts himself down as one worthy to die the death. David had destroyed other people's lives. He had put people to death by his own power. And he is worthy of death, he sees in God's own eyes. And he says, Lord, deliver me from that. And so he cries out, O God, and then it's like he catches himself, O God of my salvation. In verse 1, he says, have mercy upon me, O God. Verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And now he says, O God, once more, and, and, and just causes him a moment of pause. The God I am dressing is the God of my salvation. And this is one of the beauties of what we understand the scriptures to proclaim to us. What God gives us is not a self-help plan, a way that we can atone for our own sins. Instead, what he gives us is rescue. 
I mean, salvation is a word meaning you need to be saved. I need to be saved. We need to be saved. And so when he calls God, God of my salvation, he's saying that God who created all things is the one who saves me. He understood his need of rescue. In fact, John Stott, the late Anglican minister, once said, Christianity is in fact a rescue religion. If you think of Christianity as a religion, don't think of it as a way in which people climb their way to God. That's not it at all. The faith that Jesus gave to us is one that tells us that we need to be rescued. We need to be saved. And so that's what David cries out for here. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. What does David mean here? He wants to sing, and he wants to sing of God's righteousness. What does this mean here? David is getting at the fact that God needs to be a righteous God. He can't just sweep things under the carpet. If if he were to just sweep things under the carpet, it would be a travesty of justice. It would be injustice. Just think of a judge who who has a a murder convict, a a person charged for murder, and he's convicted for murder, I should say. And, And if the judge were just to say, you know what, just promise you won't do it again and you can go free. That would be a travesty of justice. And so David here wants to sing about God and his salvation and of God's righteousness. And how is God going to relate rightly to a humanity that has gone astray? And it's found in the way that God wants to rightly relate to his his fallen creation. He'd already been teaching the nation of Israel to understand that there has to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so David understood that on one level, but he didn't understand how God would bring this completely about. We didn't learn it really until Jesus came about. In fact, the Apostle Paul would put it like this, talking about what God has done in Jesus. Book of Romans chapter 3 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That righteousness that David spoke about, that the prophets wrote about, he says now has been manifested in Jesus Christ. He talks about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a fancy theological word that basically means a sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice that covers from the justice of God. So God put him forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. In other words, what Paul is talking about is that in the the death of Jesus, we need to see a sacrifice in which God was able to put the sins of his people upon the Savior who bore them for us so that justice could be served and so that you and I can receive mercy. And so Paul goes on to say, what God did, it it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what we bring to God is not our good works to contribute to salvation, but simply our sin that needs to be dealt with. And when we turn to him, we need to think of God placing our sins upon Jesus, and Jesus receiving justice for that, and we get mercy and grace and forgiveness. 
that's the righteousness of God in action. That's what David wanted to understand and sing about. We put this in our songs all the time. This Friday, of course, is, is Good Friday. And we just sung recently in our service these words. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath, the judicial wrath, the rightness of God, was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the love of Christ I live. Or the song, Man of Sorrows, that we're going to sing after the message. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So David in verse 15 says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. He has just told God that he wants to sing about his righteousness. And so now he says, oh God, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. My friends, this is why, incidentally, we sing when we get together. And it's kind of weird in our culture for a bunch of people to get together and sing. I know sometimes that happens like at the Rotary Club. I know when we go to Aggie sports events, there are songs we sing. But but typically, we just don't get together with a bunch of people that maybe we don't really know that much about and, and come together and sing about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But, but that's why we do it. We, we put words together to stir our souls so that we can marvel at the grace of God. Philip Ryken, one, one place, put it like this. The history of salvation is sometimes described as a drama, the drama of redemption. However, he says... This drama is actually a musical. It is impossible to conceive a biblical Christianity without songs of praise. I thought he put it that so well. I remember when I was younger, I used to kind of sneer at musicals. I'm like, how unrealistic is it for people just to break out in spontaneous song? <laughs> but if we understand what Jesus has done for us, not only did he lay down his life for a screw-up like me, but, but he wants to use my life to spotlight his grace. And he gives me forgiveness and welcome into his kingdom and his embrace. We should find ourselves at times just welling up with praise. And it just seems right to, to want to sing about that. Spurgeon in another place put it like this. A great sinner pardon makes a great singer. And by that, he doesn't mean that we necessarily hit the keys. <laughs> but he means that when we understand God's grace that matches us and rescues us at the depth of our sin, grace greater than our sin. There's something within us that just doesn't feel numb, but comes alive and wants to break out in singing. We sing this song at Mercy Hill. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone, from the first to the last, hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. The recognition of God's mercy begins to define us, and it begins to be the joy in the song of our life. And so here's the third effect that grace and mercy should have in our lives. We will want to grow in humility. Listen to what David says. Verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, you will not be pleased with the burnt offering. This is interesting because at the time that David spoke, this is exactly what God told his people to do. 
to make sacrifices, to, to make offerings. And in doing so, we'll understand that there needs to be the shedding of blood, life for life, so that our life can be redeemed and brought before God. And he says here, you, you would not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. What is David getting at here? My friends, I want to suggest that what he's getting at here is God doesn't want just a superficial show of religiosity towards him. This was a problem in the nation of Israel over and over again. For example, the prophet Micah put it like this. You can almost hear the sarcasm as he puts himself in the place of the people of that day. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my sin? You can almost hear the sneer in that, can't you? What does God want from me? Just tell me, and I'll, I'll just get it. I want to throw him a bone so I can just get on with my life. Isaiah, the prophet, as a voice piece of God, said, What is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings. God is telling his people, who he, who he taught this rhythm of sacrifice, life for life. Don't do that anymore. You're just, you're just going through the motions. Your heart's not in it. In his book, Wider Than Snow, which is a book-length meditation, it's not too long, but it's a book-length meditation on Psalm 51, and, it, and it's really amazing. It's really worth your investment and in, in soaking in this. But he has, he has one chapter called Sacrifices, and it's, it's a poem. And I just want to read this to you. It's too long to put all the words on the screen. But listen to what Paul David Tripp writes. Perhaps if I give you some of my time, perhaps if I give you some of my strength, perhaps if I give you some of my things, perhaps if I give you some of my thoughts, perhaps if I give you some of my successes, perhaps if I give you some of my relationships. Surely these sacrifices will bring you delight. Surely these offerings will bring you joy. I'm quite willing to give a tithe. I'm quite willing to interrupt my schedule. I'm quite willing to volunteer to serve. I'm quite willing to do my part. But I get the sense that you're not satisfied with a piece of me. I get the sense that momentary giving Momentary service, momentary sacrifice, momentary ministry, the momentary turning of my heart to you will not satisfy you. But I must admit that I'm afraid of what you require. I'm afraid of a broken spirit. I'm afraid of a contrite heart. I'm afraid to be crushed by your grace. So I try to distract you with my service, distract you with my time, distract you with my money. Deep inside, I know what you want. Deep inside, I'm sure of what you require. 
I'm afraid because I want to hold on to my heart. I want to give it to other things. I want to pursue pleasures outside of you. I'm afraid to give you what would satisfy you. I'm afraid of a broken heart. So I regularly offend you with empty offerings and vacuous praise, hoping to my own destruction that you will be satisfied. I think this is exactly the idea that David is getting at here. Sure, I could offer God sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, but that's not really what he's after. God is after our very hearts, as we've been saying this entire time. So he says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Let's look at just a few of these words here. What comes to your mind when you think of someone who has a a broken spirit or a broken heart? You think of someone who who is overcome with sorrow, right? Someone who's experienced somehow, some way, deep disappointment. And that word contrite gives us an idea of of regret, of wishing things were different. And so David tells us, really at the climax of this this wonderful psalm, the sacrifices of God, what God is after, is a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. You see, my friends, when we bring a broken heart before God, that actually brings him great joy. His heart is drawn to it. Look at what Isaiah said. This is the one to whom I will look. Speaking for God, he says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. You want to know what draws the gaze of God? What God finds absolutely irresistible? Humility brokenness. And so, a couple points of application, my friends. The first one is this. Let us learn to abhor our sin so we can adore our Savior. I confess, I I put this up to begin with in my preparation, and then I took it back out because I'm like, no, this is too kind of in your face. I'm mindful of groups who Christian organizations and churches that because they want to to not fall into kind of an angry, judgmental spirit will go to the opposite extreme and not talk about sin at all. But if, if there's no talk of sin, there's no talk of the Savior. And so what David is trying to teach us and what Jesus would want us to learn is that when we, like David, humble ourselves before the Lord, when we own our sin, that sin that once brought us pleasure, we now abhor. We are in the perfect place to adore our Savior. We can call upon the God of our salvation. This last week I came across a teaching of John Piper, and he was talking about sin. He was delivering this at a conference, and this is what he said. This was so helpful for me. He said, sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God, not praised, the truth of of God, not sought, the wisdom of God, not esteemed, the beauty of God, not treasured, the goodness of God, not savored, the faithfulness of God, not trusted, 
The promises of God not believed? The commandments of God not obeyed? The justice of God not respected? The wrath of God not feared? The grace of God not cherished? The presence of God not prized? And the person of God not loved? Sin, says Piper, is the ultimate outrage in the universe that we don't treasure God above everything. And I think King David would say, this is exactly what I'm trying to say. In my moment of insanity, when I suppressed reality, and I lived as if I were the God of the universe and could do whatever I wanted to, I left a wake of destruction in my path. I thought so lowly of God that I could live in his universe, being animated by his oxygen that fills my lungs by his grace, that, that I could get away with abuse and murder. And so, my friends, this week, as we enter Holy Week, and we think about what Jesus did on the cross, we have every reason to abhor our sin. Listen to what one of the the great hymns of our faith says, Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. When we think about what Jesus went through for us, when he took our sin upon himself, we can judge it rightly by what happens on Good Friday. Jason, I lost connection, so I need you to forward this for me. A great hymn by Augustus Top Lady. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. You see, when we find ourselves in the place that David found himself, where we can bring nothing to God, we simply cry out for grace, simply cry out for mercy, that's the best place to be in. Because this is, as Jesus said, what poverty of spirit looks like. In fact, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is great news, my friends. Because as James, the brother of Jesus, tells us, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Yes, when David was abusing people, when David was abusing his power, God opposed him in that. That is not his design for any of us. But when he humbled himself, there he found grace to cover all his sins. And so I'm going to throw up this phrase that he used, oh God of my salvation. I wonder if this could be a phrase that we use in our prayers more and more. When we cry out and say, dear God, what would it be like if we just caught ourselves in that moment and described God as the God of my salvation. I think that we would grow in our appreciation of the great length at which God was willing to go for us. By the way, I just want to throw this, this quote up on the screen. Martin Luther said, When Satan tells me I'm a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably because Christ died for sinners. Isn't that beautiful? There's an accuser, the evil one, who will tell you that God can't use a screw-up like you, 
God can't possibly show you mercy and grace. You're a sinner. And you say, praise the Lord, (laughs) because Christ died for sinners. So that's the first point of application. Let's abhor our sin so that we can adore our Savior. And here's the second point of application. Let's believe that God wants to use our own grace story to point others to him. Do you believe that, my friends? Do you believe like David was put on display to highlight God's grace? And just like the Apostle Paul was put on display as a trophy of God's grace, do you believe that God wants to use you to display his grace to others? Do you believe that God can use a screw-up like you and me? I've got good news for you, my friends. That's all he uses. That's all he uses. So we're called, for example, in the scriptures, to sing to the Lord and to bless his name, to tell of his salvation day after day. Or in the words of another hymn, this is my story. This is my song. Listen to how Paul put it. The Son of God loved me, gave himself for me. Christ Jesus has made me his own. So my friends, I want to conclude our time together where we started off, with John Newton. Can you imagine if you had been in his shoes and you had enslaved people, you participated in in the theft of people for profit, and you later came to abhor your sin. Can you imagine just the guilt that you would carry, and the reminder that you would carry. How could you possibly point anyone to the amazing grace of God? And yet that's exactly what he, has, what he has done with his life. Listen to what he said one time. I am not the man I ought to be. <laughs> I, I, I so resonate with what he says here. I am not the man I ought to be. I am not the man I wish to be. And I am not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not the man I used to be. As his life drew to a close, his bodily health began to break down. He began to lose his memory. And he told a good friend of his in the final days of his life, my memory is nearly gone, but still I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior.